I invite you to turn in the Word of God this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, where we are at present. Last Lord's Day, we dealt with verses 3 through 8. <clears throat> Every time I say that number, I'm always thinking about what's going through minds. What, what number is that? The one between 7 and 9? There are just these few little words that you have that seem to catch people out. And we were talking about was it last week I mentioned the word poor? Someone mentioned that as well. And I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to come kind of to the middle ground. So before it would have just been purr. And <laughs> so everyone, what, what's, is that something a cat does? And uh, he's come around a little bit poor, but you can't just quite, it's, it's hard to come the whole way. It seems very unnatural. Um, it's the same with, Isaiah, or Isaiah, and I was quite comfortable just saying Isaiah until I met a young man and his name was Isaiah, and I thought, it doesn't, I, I feel like I'm not actually calling him his name if I say Isaiah, so I had, I thought, well, I'll say Isaiah so that he uh, doesn't feel that I'm mispronouncing his name. So you can, you can alter a few things, but yeah, it. <laughs> that's, that's still very much Northern Irish. Well, we're going to read from verse 9 and read through the end of verse 12. And this is the Word of God, the precious Word of God. Let us hear it with profit. May the Lord be pleased to meet the need of our hearts. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 9. As touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Amen. The Lord bless His Word as we have heard it here before us. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord momentarily. God, we are thankful for Thy Word how lost we would be without the Word of God. It seems at times we don't take it uh, to value it the way we should. We take it for granted. Perhaps if we were like those of bygone centuries and we, we needed to write it out by hand and it was very, very costly to ever have a copy, perhaps then we would 
really value it. Lord, we pray that in spite of the way we are blessed today to be able to have copies so freely, we pray it will not be lost on us. What a tragedy that God would mercifully bless us with the Word being so easily accessible and then becomes something that we do not truly value. So we pray that Thou wilt make us very attentive to Thy Word today and every day. So bless us here as we meditate therein and give us all the help of Thy Spirit that we need as hearers, as the preacher. We pray the Holy Ghost will come upon us that Thou wilt do Thy work in building the flock and strengthening every heart. So hear us this morning and be with us and meet with us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. What if the practical side of the Christian life could be boiled down to one word? What if all that God requires of us as His people could be considered really under one thing? I know immediately some of you would be thinking about that and perhaps your mind would be going immediately to the correct answer that you know the Word of God gives us that instruction and teaches the fact that things can be essentially boiled down to one truth as far as the practical outworking of the Christian life. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, for example, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. Or, as he says in Romans 13, verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. To love is to fulfill the law. And so everything can be boiled down essentially to one word, love. Now last week we considered verses eight through or three through eight, where the apostle addresses the sin of sexual immorality, the perversion of intimacy that is completely opposed to God's will, and there is much to consider there, especially in the day in which we live, and the increasing distortion of the will of God that has even come into the church where even those that profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are thinking differently and thinking in ways that never we would have thought of before, certainly in a bygone or recently bygone generation. It just seems as if we are spiraling out of control in our understanding of morality. We are being conditioned by the world in which we live. We're thinking differently and speaking differently about some of these things than the church would have in the past. In verse 6, we made mention of the fact that the Apostle is addressing here what appears to be a particular sin that was going on in that church, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother. You could say that no man would sin and defraud his brother in any matter, in, in, in the matter, as it could be. And the matter being considered, of course, is immorality, all for, forms of fornication, adultery, whatever may be applicable. And so he says, The Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. And so he brings this reminder, an awareness that 
even in that day, as they would become conditioned by their past or by what they are observing, maybe even in those around them, though this particular sin of, of adultery was not something that was agreeable in the first century in that context. It went on for sure, but it wasn't something that was acceptable. But no doubt it went on to the degree that even some within the church may have thought that it's not a huge deal. Or perhaps they were beginning to twist things in terms of their liberty in Christ that they thought, well, well, it doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal. But Paul addresses this as a very serious matter, and he seeks to bring what we might say the fear of God upon their hearts, that the Lord is the avenger of all such. And one of the things that we have lost in our day that I, I, I don't think is really up for debate is a sense of the fear of God. We, we, the, there was a sense in which in the church there was a fear of God, that God's people feared His name. And I don't mean in that slavish fear, I mean in that reverence to the one that, that we don't trifle with, that we don't take lightly the fact that He can, if He sees fit, snuff any one of us out in a moment. And that examples are given in relation to that in both Old Testament and in the New Testament. That if you consider these matters lightly, if you don't consider them seriously, you may come under the judgment of God. God will be the avenger of those that are harmed by your sin in relation to these kinds of sins. And Paul had already forewarned and testified to this fact. It wasn't something hidden. God's people need to know there are consequences for sin. God's people need to know that even those that profess His name, if they trifle with immorality, there will be consequences and God will see to it. It's not a light matter. And I sought by the help of the Lord to bring that very soberly last Lord's Day. I don't think we can make light of these matters, and especially in the climate when there is a lack of a fear of God. If we all truly feared the Lord, reverenced Him in our hearts the way we should, then one word spoken would smite the heart and we'd be humbled and we would respond. We'd be so sensitive to the fact that we're grieving the Spirit. But those are not the days in which we live generally. I speak generally. I'm sure there are many of the Lord's people here and you're walking with the Lord, you're sensitive to sin, and you want continually to walk in a way that is pleasing in His sight. But you will know as well as I do that that is not, that the climate of the church today is not one that fears God. We don't even use that term. I think, was it Al Martin brought out some publication or wrote a little publication, someone did anyway, that said, where are all the God-fearers? We don't even use that term anymore. That, that, that's a God-fearing man. That's a God-fearing woman. That's a God-fearing young person. And it, it's, it's, it's something that was commonplace. But it's not so today. We so focus upon our liberties in Christ, we take them to the extremes that were never, ever, never intended by the Lord. And of course, that was common in the first century as well, which is why it's addressed in many places. But having dealt with these matters of immorality, matters of lust, as it is called in verse 5, lust of concupiscence. This is, this is lust, this is going after the carnal desire. Having dealt with that, Paul moves on to deal with love. Not lust, 
but love. And so that's the context in which he addresses the matter of brotherly love, as we have it in verse 9 and following. Now, Paul here, as I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there's some matters that he begins to address. It may have come arisen from questions that came from the church or just information that was passed on to the apostle from Timothy, but there were certain matters that needed to be addressed. And when we come to verse 9, here is one of them, as touching brotherly love. The language is, I'm touching on this because you want me or you need me to at this time. And I think if I was to guess that they were asking questions. You know, back in those days when you couldn't just kind of pick up a telephone and ask at a whim or uh, send a text message or an email. In those days, if there was traveling, if, if someone was, was moving between cities or areas, it was very important that they would take messages that if there was a message to go, people would think very seriously, have I something to ask a particular person where this man is going to? And you would think very seriously about it because it wasn't a common thing. It wasn't easy to get information to another area, to another city, to another locality. And so if there was someone in the church that was moving to another area, another district, for example, someone is going to visit the Apostle Paul, everyone would be very careful to think about what questions should we be asking? What matters should we raise so that we can receive the help that we need? Because it might be a long time before we have this opportunity again. And so you have it certainly in the letter, 1 Corinthians, where there, there are a series of questions, a series of issues that are being addressed by the apostle in order. And it seems to be the case here. Verse 9, this question about brotherly love, loving the brethren. And then on down, we're going to see a few others. I'll not go through them all with you now. But in chapter 4 and 5, there are a few of these questions that arise. So we come then and deal with really what is flowing out of what Paul has already dealt with, the topic of sanctification, holiness of life, what the Christian life looks like, what God would have us to be by His grace. And having dealt with lust, he moves into love. And we're going to consider brotherly love here, verses 9 and 10. It goes on into verse 11 and 12 and has much to say to us there, but we'll deal with that, God willing, uh, next time. But let us consider then what we've entitled simply brotherly love. And first note with me, brotherly love is directed. Brotherly love is directed. Verse 9, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. The word here, the words brotherly love are one word in the Greek, familiar to many of you I know, uh, Philadelphia. And in one sense, it comes as a surprise to us, I think, reading this epistle in context, that they would be asking about love. Because if you remember and you read through it again, you will see that Paul continually commends this church for their love. He speaks about their love frequently, about the love that they manifest, the love that they show right from the very first lines of the epistle. So here, as he addresses brotherly love, the question would be asked, well, why even bring this up? Why is it a matter at all? Why is it a subject that needs to be addressed when it seems that the tenor of the epistle is these people are abounding in love already? Well, because of very good reason that he deals with it, they are 
struggling in certain areas that relate to love within the church. The verses we just dealt with, verse 6, someone defrauding his brother. Clearly, if this was a matter going on, which seems to be the case, something happened there, even if it was just an isolated event. There were things going on that would cause division within the body of Christ. Later, we're going to see matters that relate to how those that die in the Lord and what happens in terms of where they are and what's going to occur there, the Lord's return at the beginning of chapter 5, and how to deal with leadership, how to view the leadership is dealt with in chapter 5 as well. These are just some issues that if you don't think rightly about them, it may cause division within the church. You have some having one opinion, another having another opinion. They begin to discuss it, and perhaps they don't know how to handle the variation of opinion. And so the love that no doubt was evident in that church, certainly from the outset. Again, this church is born in a context of persecution. Persecution is a wonderful aid to love for the brethren. When you have that real sense that the only people who are for you are the people of God, then you're going to love one another because your back is against the wall and the whole world is against you and you need, you need to understand that unity that you enjoy in Christ. The only people watching your back are those that name the name of Christ. And so you become very sensitive to the world opposing you and you all together are united around this common experience of being persecuted for the cause of Christ. So that's how the church begins. Love is no doubt abounding in their hearts. But, Paul says, as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. In other words, you don't need me to elaborate and give a long explanation on this point. Why? Because they are taught of God. They are directed by God. That term taught of God, again, is one word, a compound word, just essentially it says literally, God taught. They are God taught. It's found only here in the New Testament. And Paul is saying here something that while this word is only here, it's not a new idea that we find in the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, as He feeds the 5,000 or has fed the 5,000, and the next day they're coming after Him, and He begins then to teach them that He is the bread of God sent down from heaven. And He starts to discuss the fact that no one can come to the Father, come to Him except the Father draw Him, and all of this. He says this in John 6, 45, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. And so, those who truly know the Lord, those who are drawn to God, are those that are taught by God. Or to put it another way, if you're really regenerate, if you're truly the Lord's, you already have been taught by God. And so this was true of those in this particular church. They had been taught by God. But being taught by God, which really, again, let me just say this, when, when you read that there, that they are taught of God, this relates to their regeneration, their salvation. Anyone who comes to a saving knowledge of Christ has been taught of God. You can't be saved without being taught of God. No man comes to Christ except 
the Father draws them. Remember what the Lord said also concerning uh, to His disciples that um, these things are hidden from the wise and prudent that are revealed unto babes and, and, and talks about the fact that, that the Father teaches and even in that context when, when Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, He said, Blessed art thou, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father. And so anyone who's regenerate, anyone who is saved, has been taught by God. So when you read that term, don't just think of it in terms of they are receiving an education from God. Fundamentally, to be taught of God is to be saved. Now what happens then when you're saved? Well, you will love the brethren. <laughs> you will have brotherly love. There's a few ways in which we can look at this brotherly love and how it's directed. First, it is directed by God's nature. It is directed by God's nature. One of the blessings of the Christian life is the experience of adoption, to be brought into the family of God. The cross of Christ is not just about your redemption, beloved. It is about your reception. Not just about your redemption, but your reception. And I use that word carefully. In our larger catechism, question 74 asks, what is adoption? And the answer given is, adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of His children, have His name put upon them, the Spirit of His Son given to them, are under His fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises, and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. You're not just redeemed. You're received. You're brought into the family of God. He takes you as His own. Salvation is not, as I've put it in various ways on other occasions, it's not just some act that is performed by God and then he stands off. He says, I've done, I've done this work for you. You're on your way to heaven. And then God carries on with his business, not really interested in your life and what's going on. No. No, no, no. He provides salvation and you are saved and you're brought into Christ and you're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But you're brought into the family of God. He receives you into the family of God. And that just lifts it to another level, beloved. When you think of your position in Christ, when you struggle with the battles of life, when you seek to understand the whys of life, why? Never, never let it be far from your thought that you are a child of God. That will help eliminate the questions that should not be asked, the doubts, wondering, does He really love me? You are His child. You've been received. Christ has provided a salvation that brings you into the family of God. Now, since we are the children of God, it is not surprising that it should be expected that we take on God's nature in relation to His communicable attributes. When I say communicable, I mean those attributes of God that can be communicated and experienced by men. God is love. We understand that. But God is also infinite. We don't understand that. That's not communicable. We 
don't understand the infinite. There's nothing about us in that way that is infinite. We don't get it. That's the incommunicable attributes of God. But the communicable attributes, those aspects of the divine nature begin to be manifested by His children. We should not be surprised by that. So what do we know about God's nature? Well, I've said it already. God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. Thus, the Lord Jesus calls us not just to love our neighbor, but also our enemy. Why? Matthew 5, 45 gives us the answer, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now, we are loved by God, but we... <laughs> Let us not forget we were the children of wrath even as others. He loved those that were at enmity with Him. And we are called then to take on His nature to reflect His character by loving our enemies that we may be the children of our Father which is in heaven. So when we manifest love, we reflect that which gives evidence to the fact that we are the children of God. We are proving it. And according to Peter, believers are, in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We escape the past, the bondage to another way of living, and we have this new nature, the new man. And that manifests different characteristics. We begin to live differently. And Christians are taught through this new nature, through the divine nature, that they have received by regeneration, they are taught. What are they taught? Look at verse 9. They are taught of God to love one another. So it is directed by God's nature. It's also directed by God's Spirit. The reason our nature has changed is because of the work of the Spirit of God. The old man is crucified with Christ. The new man lives by the Spirit. And where there is a genuine work of the Spirit in the life of a people, there will always be the outworking of love for the brethren. Why? Why will there always, if the Spirit is worked, why will there always be an outworking of love for the brethren? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Galatians 5.22 Furthermore, we are told by Paul in Romans 5 verse 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. This is an, a, a universal experience for every professor of Christ that truly knows the Lord, those that walk with Him and have had their hearts changed. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So the Spirit is with us, and the Spirit is directing us. He's directing you from the moment of your regeneration, of your salvation, when you were born again, you were taught of God to love one another. There's no escaping this. This is, again, I say, universal. There's no way of avoiding it. However spirit-led we may claim to be, if there's an unwillingness to truly love a brother, we are not being led by the Spirit. And... You're giving evidence to the fact that there is a problem in our hearts. We are quenching the Spirit. We're driving Him away. We are taught of God to love one another from the moment we're regenerated. We are taught of God to love one another. We should never, ever 
think that's a light matter. It is directed by God's nature. It's directed by God's spirit and it's directed by God's word. God does not teach his people without the instrumentality of his word. He always uses his word. His word guides us, instructs our hearts. And in the earliest pages of the Bible, we learn what it's like to not love. Don't we? We see Cain slaying his brother Abel. One of the first events we read, a lack of love for his brother, brother according to the flesh. No love. And when you go through the law of God, you will find that the, the law of Moses is full of, full of provisions which reflected the love that the people of God are to have toward one another. I'll just give you one portion of that in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, a very important portion of God's word. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18, we are told there by the Lord, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Now, again, some people read the New Testament and think that certain things are exclusive to the New Testament. So that, you know, it's, it's okay to, to hate uh, and, and it was okay to hate in the heart, but it's not now because Jesus has taught us another way, a higher way. It's, it, it was there all the time. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Not bearing any grudge against the Lord's people. You're not being taught by God. You're not being taught by His Word if you do. So brotherly love is directed, isn't it? It's directed by God immediately from our salvation, our conversion. I don't need to elaborate on this, Paul says. It's touching brotherly love. I don't need to write a lengthy exposition on this. Ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. You're God taught. God's nature, God's spirit, God's word, it all points to the fact that you must love one another. But brotherly love, secondly, is demonstrated. It is demonstrated here in the words that were given in verse 10. Where Paul says, and indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. Now Macedonia was a large region. And the church was reaching out. Again, go back to chapter 1, just to see this for a moment, in case you forget. Chapter 1, verse 8, verse 7, read from there. Chapter 1, verse 7, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Now you're going out, you're spreading out, you're taking the gospel out throughout Macedonia, throughout Achaia, and churches were being planted. Little groups of believers were gathering together. The work was prospering and going forward because of the labors of this congregation. Wonderful. And the church understood that they had a commitment to those that would profess faith wherever they were. And so these, these churches would be established and they would see them and they would minister to them and they would 
They would be part of their work and help them and love them in whatever way they could. And so this was going on. And everyone knows the, the wonderful work that happened there in Thessalonica and they're rejoicing in it and they're having a profound influence in the wider region. But here's the strange thing. It is often easier to love those that we don't really know are or at a distance from us than it is to love those who are right beside us. It's a, it's a strange thing. You would nearly think it should be the opposite, but it's not always the case. The grass is greener, as they say. And you see this in different ways. You see this in different ways. You see a man who begins to think that he may want to leave his wife and not always necessarily for another woman. He just may leave her in the hope of another woman, or at least because in his head anything could be better than where he is at present, and he wouldn't have to live with someone that he interprets as being so demanding and difficult or having characteristics that are unattractive to him. And so he begins to fantasize. He fantasizes about another life fantasizes about another relationship, imagines one that would be better suited to him. A woman may do this very same thing. It's not exclusive to men. And, and, and they, they, they build this picture in their mind and they imagine it. And then, of course, if they act on it, there they go, they head out, and everyone they meet that shows an interest all of a sudden seems far better than where they were before. The grass is greener. It takes time to see the true nature of a person, to get to grips with the true experience of living in close quarters with another person. And there are many people, many, very many, who have remarried, left the spouse, remarried, thought it was wonderful, only to find that it was not so wonderful. In fact, they may have walked into something that was far worse than they were ever in before. Not an uncommon experience. It is often easier to love those we don't really know. And Christians can be guilty of the same. They can love, oh, how they love that pastor that they don't know. He's over there and he writes these wonderful books and preaches these great sermons, but they don't know him. If he came and sat down beside them in an airplane, they don't know each other. <laughs> they have no relationship whatsoever. But from a distance, he's wonderful. But they're that little pastor that they have to put up with in their church. Well, they get to see warts and all. You get to see that he's not perfect in any way, what form or at all. He's just, he's just full of imperfections as well. And over time, it becomes even more prominent, perhaps. And what do you do? What do you do? You, you think, oh, you know, you imagine, you fantasize about being in that wonderful church with that wonderful preacher who writes all those wonderful books. And it's fantasy. It's not real life. It's not grounded in reality. And the same can happen in the body of Christ. This is my point. 
they could love all these brethren out in Macedonia. They could love them all, love all of them wherever they were. They're not doing life together in close proximity. They're not seeing the ups and downs and the inconsistencies and the not seeing all of that. It's easy to love all them out there, but here you are in this little close proximity, and it's just like a family. I had this discussion with my own children very recently, you know, and talking to them, look, girls, you need to understand that, you know, talking to them in terms of valuing one another and appreciating one another and realizing that it ought to be that you will be best friends for all the days that God gives you here on the earth. And they're bickering and so on and so forth. And, and, and then one of them said, they said, you know, I was asking about, I, I can't remember how it came about, but anyway, the discussion came around that it was more difficult to really appreciate and treat with respect the sibling than it is the person out there that lives in the same neighborhood or the other young people that they meet at church. It's more difficult. Why? Because they see, they see warts and all, and they, they, they're, they're more free with each other, and, it's, and you, you get that familiarity there, and there can, be, there can be a sense of lack of appreciation. Well, it can happen in the church. It can happen in the church. And you know what grieves my heart? It grieves my heart that we live in a time where it's far too easy it's far too easy to walk away than it is to talk it out. And so someone gets upset in the church. Someone is hurt by a word spoken. Someone is offended by a deed done or left undone or whatever the case might be. And they get hurt and they get offended. And the easiest thing is to just hop in their cars and drive to the other side of the town and go to another church where everything appears fine. Young people do this all the time. Young people always do this. They, they grow up in a church. They're struggling in their faith, especially in their teens. They see a lot of hypocrisy in the people in the church. And I'm not, I'm not excusing rampant hypocrisy, by the way. But you're always going to see a measure of hypocrisy wherever you are. You're always going to see a measure of it. And they, 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 they can't live in that environment. They can't, so what do they do? They go to another church where they don't know that 20 years, 30 years of history of those people in that church where inevitably in that period of time you're going to hear things and see things and experience things that just remind you you're on earth as a child of God with other people that are still, still imperfect. You get this whole history, the overtime, you're going to know things. But instead of talking about it, instead of saying, brother, we need to talk, you just, you, the easiest thing is to walk away. And what is missing is this real covenant commitment to stick together no matter what. That we are in this, that we're in union with Christ. What is the point of trying to ignore you here when I can't ignore you in eternity? We are here doing life now in this world, facing the struggles, the battles together. And it's, it may be easier to walk away 
But that is not the will of God. It has to be worked out. It has to be talked out. This, this is how a, how a community grows and becomes really strong. Not by, with every little disagreement, one walks away. Everyone in a marriage knows this. Does not the marriage grow stronger when you work out the difficulties, when you talk it out, when you communicate, and you learn and you, you, you understand and you live together according to knowledge, and it just grows in strength, and you become more committed to one another. And this is the way it should be in the body of Christ. Now again, for centuries, you had no choice because you didn't have a car. And your horse, if you had one, would only take you so far. And so you had whatever church that you could get to, which was probably not that far away. And you were going to be born there and you were going to die there. And so if something happened, you had to work it out. Not just hop in your car and in 15 minutes you can be at the other side in a completely different territory area with different people trying to ignore the problems. No, no, this, this is not how it's meant to be done, beloved. I wish that we had a mentality where we thought to myself, he can do anything. She can say anything. I'm going nowhere. I'm going nowhere. We are absolutely committed to one another. Is that not what we want in marriage? That's what you want in the body of Christ as well. Absolute commitment. I am going nowhere. And if we're both that way, <laughs> if both parties say, I am going nowhere, then we have to work it out. And we'll be the better for it. To be fiercely loyal. To have been in the trenches with those that you sit beside on the Lord's day. To have gone through the difficulties, to have gone through the ups and downs, to have faced the hardships, to have confronted a brother with his sin, to have weeped over it together and cried and prayed. Those are the things that make community. Those are the things that reflect the gospel. And magnify the Lord in the body of Christ, not just taking the easy way out. This is what it is to love. Demonstrate. It's not just far away. They demonstrated it. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. You're doing it. You're loving. You're loving one another. You're showing love to the churches out there. But, but are you doing it here? We beseech you, brethren, but, you see that? But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. And verses 11 and 12 is going to go on and deal with practical things that relate to the local. We're not going to look at those verses today, but this, this is, I hope we get this point, that yes, oh, I'm to love a brother, I'm to love all the brethren, that's fundamental. Uh, I mean, this, this shouldn't have to be stated, really, any more than it has already, but First John is, if you need a reminder of how much you have to love the brethren, just 
take 20 minutes and read through 1 John. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? This commandment we uh, have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And I'm not going to take time to go to John 13, and you see the Lord Jesus laying that out plainly again before his disciples. But the Lord's focus again is absolute commitment to one another. John 13. Washing one another's feet. Love one another. Commitment. Loyalty. Steadfastness. A sense of the interconnectedness of every member of the body a sense that it should not be easy for us to walk away. To walk away is like the severing of a limb. Like the hacking off of a finger or a hand. It's, it's, not, it's not to be done lightly or easily. And if everyone takes the mentality and understands, understand your own heart. It is easier to love those Christians that you don't really know. It, but you spend 10, 20 years with people, 30 years, 40 years with people, sure, you're, you're going to get hurt perhaps sometime. Something's going to be said. Something's going to be done. Something's going to rub you the wrong way. I remember when I, when I preached over at the university the first time, and I made mention of... of uh, text in Psalm 119, it seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Great peace have they that love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. And applying that, applying that, if, if, if I love the Lord's Word, if I live in the fear of God, keeping His commandments, I don't need to be offended by anyone. I don't. Why should I be offended? Why? The one who judges, living in light of him and his ways. Someone has a problem with me, but I haven't done anything. There's no, I shouldn't be offended by something they might say, but I can go and talk to them. Offense, offense is not something that should really be found among God's people. And I, I, again, this this is this is this is increasing more in our generation. It's one of the great problems that's being recognized that we can't even discuss anything anymore we can't disagree without someone getting angry and upset and, and taking offense and so we can't have political discussion we can't discuss really any topic that may be a hot topic economics or whatever it might be we, we can't discuss these things because if we are on two sides and two different sides then someone's going to be offended but God's people don't need to live that way. No, no, no. No, we can walk in the fear of God. If there's something legitimately wrong with our life that our brother points out, then we thank God. The wise man loves rebuke. It's a gift. It's a blessing to be rebuked. 
and to know the truth of the word spoken to your heart. It's a precious thing. If you leave with nothing else in your heart, I want you to leave with a sense of deep loyalty. Loyalty purchased by the blood of Christ toward the saints. And to stop and don't enter into, if you're ever tempted, into the fantasy about perfect churches and perfect pastors and other perfect congregations and perfect families and perfect marriages and perfect children. and all. They don't exist. They don't exist. Yes, there may be some that are doing better than others, but it's all, none of us are perfect. And we are here in the providence of God. You're sitting beside the people you're sitting beside. You're here in this congregation. You're part of this work. And if you ever have an issue, have before you say, I'm walking away. I can't cope with it. No, fierce loyalty, sticking it out. Sometimes having the bruises. The stories to go along with them. Looking back with gratitude to God. Loyalty. Oh, how God's people need to be loyal. I'll tell you something. If persecution comes, we'll not need to be. (laughs) I will need to preach this. If persecution comes, we'll have no choice. May God's people take lightly these matters. It's It's not the way we should be. Then brotherly love is developed. I'll not really say much more than just point out how brotherly love is developed. We beseech you, brethren, verse 10, that ye increase more and more. Increase more and more. There's always room for improvement. We said that recently. There's room for improvement. We can do better. And they were doing fantastically in terms of loving the brethren. There was much to commend them. But, and I think, again, if I understand context here, questions being sent. Paul's responding. Touching brotherly love, the question might be, Help us here. We're lacking brotherly love. There's, there's things going on. Verses 11 and 12 may give a little bit more light in that when we look at them, but there are things going on. The question is, how do we love one another? And the reality is, if you're really a child of God, you shouldn't have a problem with loving your brethren. But make sure and seek by the Lord's help that you increase more and more. Don't just love those that are a distance from you. Love those that are right beside you. You remember when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers? They didn't know who he was. There had been a couple of visits and then finally he shows them who it is and what's going on and there's much weeping and embracing and so on. And when he sends them back to Jacob and to get the rest of the family that they might return and be provided for by Joseph and Goshen, he gives them a word. It almost comes out of nowhere. It seems as if, why did he say that? In Genesis 45, verse 24, So he sent his brethren away, and they departed. And he said unto them, 
see that ye fall not out by the way. See that ye fall not out by the way. You know, nothing is new under the sun. They had just received the greatest news. They had just come to the reality that their brother that they thought was dead is not dead. And now they have this privilege of, of carrying this precious news to their father and sharing with them, Joseph is alive. And better than that, he governs, basically governs over Egypt and he's invited us down so that we don't have to worry or panic anymore in the midst of this famine. He's going to take care of us and we'll be provided for and our families will be blessed if we go there and be under his care. Wonderful message. And you would think, you would think with such a message that they would go home rejoicing. But Joseph knows the heart of man. He knows as soon as they leave, they're going to go back to that day. And they're going to start pointing fingers. Was it not you that said about killing him? Was it not you that said about putting him into a pit? Was it not, you know, I'm not telling her dad the truth and you don't need to start pointing the fingers, start blaming one another, and in the midst of the most joyous occasion for the family, inroads will be made to create division. And Joseph can discern it. See that you fall not out by the way. And what a picture that is. Here are God's people, living, rejoicing in the gospel, the greatest message that ever we have heard, and we're treasuring it in our hearts, and we want to share it with others, and we should be of all people most joyful. And yet, and yet, how little it takes for us to get sidetracked and to begin to argue and bicker and, and say things that we shouldn't say and get offended and lose the sense of the joy of the salvation provided for us in Christ. Beloved, See that ye fall not out by the way. We are called to love one another in a fervent, dedicated, loyal, committed, and God-honoring way. I'm thankful for the measure of love that there is. Do not interpret this message as the preacher standing thinking there's a problem. Not at all. But we come to these texts and they're, they're just like Joseph. Preempting the possibility. And there's always, always the accuser of the brethren to come in and just throw a little pebble and cause some ripples. This unity among the body. Let us be so committed, absolutely committed, that he has no inroads to upset the unity of the body of Christ. May the Lord give us grace and help. Let's bow together in prayer.
have a tremendous obligation here, beloved. The Lord has said that hereby will men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. Know that that love was a true commitment. Why we need the help of the Spirit. Lord, we do pray for our own hearts. We are prone to wander. Prone to become selfish. Prone to prioritize our own comfort. Prioritize what we will find the easiest. Lord, I pray that Thou will give us real commitment. Like Israel of old, if, 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 if they were ever to leave there, ever to walk away from the nation, walk away from the land, there was nowhere to go. Lord, we pray for that kind of commitment. Not just in this body, but throughout thy church. We pray, God, that thou wilt give all thy sheep a sense of loyalty to each other, to the cause of Christ. That where the gospel is being preached and where the name of the Lord is being lifted up and where there's a sense of unity among common understanding of doctrine and we're able to work together where, where that exists, we pray that there would be a fierce loyalty to each other as well as to the truth. So bless us with this, we pray. We thank Thee for the measure in which we have it. It's only by Thy grace. We pray that it might increase more and more and that it would be evident to all that we truly love one another. So hear our prayers. Hide thy word in our hearts. Bless our fellowship even before we part from this place and encourage each one of us and meet with us again as we gather this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.